0: Today we're gonna talk all things allergy and immunology with Dr. Heather Moday, the director of the Moday Center for Functional and Integrative Medicine in Philadelphia. Heather received her medical degree from the Tulane Medical School in New Orleans, completed a residency in internal medicine, and a fellowship in allergy and immunology. She completed a fellowship in integrative medicine with the Arizona Integrative Medicine Program and is board certified in integrative and holistic medicine. She completed her functional medicine training with the Institute for Functional Medicine and the Kalish Functional Medicine Fellowship. Heather, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Great to see you, uh, and so glad you're here all the way from Philadelphia, one of our favorite our favorite <laughs> local cities.
1: Yes, we are the sixth borough, apparently. Oh, I love that. Yeah, man, yeah, that. that's what we're called.
0: Well, welcome. Uh, so I, I figured we'd start with what you do. You're an immunologist.
1: I am, Explain yeah. that
0: to people. <laughs> what, what, what is that?
1: <laughs> so an immunologist really is a subspecialty. Um, I mean, you can become an, a research immunologist by getting a PhD, but I came uh, a different way. I actually am a medical doctor, and after getting a, um, a specialty in internal medicine, decided to specialize in uh, immunology and allergy, and that's how they sort of uh, train you. Uh, postgraduate. So um, really, you learn all about the immune system, you know, how it works, what it does, uh, the diseases that come out of a dysregulated immune system. And there's a very large focus on allergies um, and the allergic response. So, you know, in a clinical setting, that's what I did really for 11 years after I finished uh, my fellowship. And now I still obviously, you know, deal with the immune system every day, but I have more of a functional medicine practice. So, you know, my scope of practice is a lot bigger than it used to be. So that's what's changed.
0: And so what do most people come to you for?
1: So I see a lot of people, I think like a lot of functional medicine doctors do who have uh, autoimmune disease uh, for sure. And um, I do still get a lot of people who come in for um, food issues, food allergies, food sensitivities, uh, and also a lot of chronic GI problems. I mean, I, I, get a smattering of other things as well, but, uh, I would say those are the biggest, biggest things that I see.
0: And what trends are you seeing right now with patients? I remember once, what when I asked Frank Lipman this mm-hmm. question? He said, well, my patients are getting younger and younger. Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, actually I, I really agree with him. Um, when I first started out in conventional medicine, you know, um, A lot of my patients were older. Now, in the allergy world, we tend to get young people because that's something that, you know, doesn't have boundaries of age at all. But I thought when I started my functional medicine practice uh, almost five years ago that I would have an older population. And I will say that the bulk of my patients are probably in their late 20s, 30s, maybe uh, 40s. Um, After about 60, it really drops off. I don't really see a lot of people in that age group. So, yeah, a lot of young people.
0: So why is that? What do you think is going on?
1: I think it's actually that they are more open to this view of health and wellness. They are very suspicious, I think, or not very trusting sometimes of uh, conventional medicine. But I also think that they're more questioning um, and they're more involved in their wellness and they're more educated and they also don't have this idea that, you know, doctors are God and they're not <laughs> always going to listen to them. In fact, I get a lot of um, young people come in and they say, you know, I went to my GI doctor and he or she told me I need to take this drug and I decided I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> and I hear that a lot and I think it's I think it's great. I really do.
0: So I agree. So allergies. hmm. Complicated. There seems to me I don't have allergies other than cats, but it seems to me I just read more and more allergies are becoming more and more widespread. Mm -hmm. Like what? What's going on there? In your opinion?
1: You know, there's lots of theories about it. Um, There's a very famous theory that's you know been bouncing around for a long time called the uh, hygiene hypothesis, and basically what that says is that sort of the cleaner that we've gotten. In terms of using antimicrobial soaps and using lots of antibiotics, that in infancy, children are not trained, um, their immune systems aren't allowed to sort of uh, sample the world correctly. So they're not able to really build up immunity to different things because they're so clean, right? Um, So what happens is that they start actually sort of having these, you know, exaggerated immune responses to things that are really not threatening. So things like cat dander or things like a peanut versus, you know, being able to tolerate that. So, you know, in a lot of, I would say, less developed countries where they're maybe not exposed to all of that, uh, they're playing in the dirt more, right? Um, They actually build up a much richer immune response when that's a little bit more regulated. And then they also have a better microbiome, which we know has a huge uh, impact on um, how our immune system acts. So.
0: And so what about nuts specifically mm-hmm. <laughs> with kids and what's happening right. there?
1: Yeah. So for a long time, they thought you know, that you should actually exclude nuts from children when they're, when they're little. And that, w- that would help them be less reactive. And now they're saying actually you shouldn't, that you should maybe try to give children peanuts and almonds and things like that. Why are nuts so allergenic? You know, part of it may be how they are processed now. Um, part of it may come from genetic modification. We know that when you change a protein, um, it's going to act differently in the body. And so there's some data, although it's not super robust, about how uh, the body reacts differently to genetically modified foods and proteins. And so that might be part of it.
0: So we have a two and a half year old and an eight, eight week old. Is there anything? we can do if we don't want our two girls to be allergic or right. or not? I'm just curious, like, are there proactive steps?
1: So now they're saying really that you should not necessarily avoid giving them foods, right? That you should actually introduce foods, you know, naturally as you would normally for a child. Like you, you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, well, this child's not going to have shrimp until they're two or something like that. Um, and I think the other thing is avoiding, of course, extra antibiotics antimicrobials you know things like that you know in their environment and then of course letting them play in the dirt you know i think that's that's important
0: and are you like ever out of the woods so to speak do you reach a certain age and you're like okay i don't have allergies i'm Mm -hmm. good because i've heard the contrary (laughs) and there's something going on there with like adult onset allergies
1: yeah there is i think um and i think that that can be environmental i think Uh, um now of course Things like seasonal allergies can change depending on where you move. Um, You can actually develop an allergy to a different tree pollen if you move from like California to, to New York, right? And I have seen development of food allergies in adults. And I think a lot of that goes to that barrier dysfunction in the gut. I think that's a big issue. And obviously as adults, we take lots of medications, we take lots of antibiotics, we end up having the so-called leaky gut problems, and that can then cause our immune system to sort of react to things that normally they would have not reacted to because they didn't necessarily have um, exposure to it. So I do see that um, quite a bit.
0: So let's go to the gut, because I I saw this on your Instagram where you said one cell layer separates the gut from 70% of the immune system mm-hmm. it's like wow yeah. just one layer it's a pretty, pretty thin layer too. it's a pretty
1: thin layer it's this little like they call an epithelial layer that sits literally between you know the intestinal tract and we consider that to be actually technically outside the body and then you know just beyond that you've got this whole world of these these big uh, you know where all our white blood cells these lymphocytes hang out and you know you know, that is where we sort of sample, our immune system really sort of samples the world. And it can do that actually without even a leaky gut problem, right? So um, there are ways for it to sort of reach up and and see what's coming through. And so we eat bacteria every day, um, you know, tons of viruses, parasites, and we're constantly being like bombarded um, with all of that. And then, of course, all the different foods and things that we swallow, breathe in, and so our body has to sort of learn, like, are we going to be tolerant to this? Are we going to create an immune response, like something we have to kill? Or is it something that's going to make us inflamed, right? So yeah, the immune system, even though we have other areas, of course, where there's immune cells and they're constantly circulating, but sort of like the control battle station is in the gut.
0: Yeah. I love that. So what are the best and worst things, in your opinion, to to protect that that one cell layer?
1: (laughs) Well, number one is you have to take care of your microbiome for sure. So to that end, it's, you know, not really taking antibiotics unless you absolutely need it, you know, unless you have a serious infection that they know is caused by bacteria or something like that. So Because even just one course of these powerful antibiotics that we have now can really um, significantly deplete or or throw off the balance. So that's number one. You really have to be careful with that. Number two, of course, is eating foods that are going to help grow that microbiome. And lots of people, you know, talk about prebiotic foods, right? And that's really what they eat. They love fiber, they love resistant starch, they love all that kind of stuff. And that's you know they pretty much feast on what is left over after we've absorbed what we need in our small intestine. Everything goes down there, to the colon, and they they have a they have a smorgasbord of, of food. So you got to feed your microbiome. And I would say the other thing, um, I mean, there's obviously there's toxins that we ingest. Um, Alcohol is not not always our friend. Um, there's uh, of course drugs that people take, like those nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories, those things you know for pain, Advil, etc. And then, of course, there's stress, which I would say is probably one of the biggest issues. Is uh, the hormones that get secreted by chronic stress actually can can harm that layer too?
0: So you mentioned inflammation, mm-hmm. which you know, very very hot topic. A lot of word <laughs> yeah. people are yeah. saying, inflammation. No, no yeah. infl- inflammation is yeah. the root of all evil. Right. You made a distinction. I think it's important if you could walk us through. Not all inflammation is bad, and there's good inflammation sure. versus bad inflammation, which I think is an important point. Could you talk us through that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, if we did not have inflammation, we would all be dead.
0: <laughs> Whoa! Stop right there.
1: <laughs> I mean, you think about it that way, right? I mean, this is played out obviously in you know children who are born with immune deficiencies, like they have genetically don't have the ability to mount an immune response. And this you can also see in, in people who have, uh, you know, HIV, AIDS, you know, uh, back in the 80s when we didn't have any, anything to fight uh, that viral infection, they died pretty quickly. And they died because they could not mount an immune response to, to the virus and to other, um, you know, infections. And so when we, all day long, literally, like I said, we're being bombarded, you know, and you're on the subway, you know, the virus is flying into your mouth, we don't get sick all the time, right? Like how does that not happen? And it's because we are constantly mounting these little mini inflammatory responses, right? So we, you know, our immune system gets um, you know, signaled that we have to put out a fire. It's gonna create you know, inflammation, all those you know, so-called cytokines, the type of chemicals that um, white blood cells uh, secrete and they, they signal to each other, that goes on. So that inflammation, that inflammatory response is really, really, really important the second phase is then cleaning it up right so there's a sort of a second signal that comes through and says okay bacteria dead virus dead okay let's clean up the mess and then the anti-inflammatory response comes in and sort of gets everything back to a homeostasis or a balance so so yeah you have to have inflammation if you didn't I mean think about it if you didn't have fever or if you didn't have say say you broke your foot and your foot didn't swell That is all inflammation and and it's swelling because it's bringing, you know, all sorts of immune cells and blood supply to that, to that foot so it can heal. So inflammation is the first part of the healing process, really.
0: And like, what's, what's like the best inflammation, (laughs) the best kind of inflammation?
1: Oh, that's a tricky question. Um it should be short. (laughs) I like that. Um, It should, it should be regulated. Um, And so when we talk about this sort of like smoldering inflammation that people have, it's because that sort of second phase doesn't happen. Um, Certain signals don't occur that stop it.
0: Why I was asking, because it reminded me, Kelly McGonigal wrote a book, The Mm -hmm. Upside of Stress.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's Mm -hmm. like
0: this idea of you know there's like chronic stress like it's elongated like that's bad Mm -hmm. but like there's also like you know yeah little stress if you will oh yeah and that's the important like that's the good that's why i was asking like the good stress like you need you need the good ones like the upside
1: and i totally agree with that in fact um you know before i got into immunology i actually worked in a lab in new york city right after uh college (laughs) before medical school and it was a lab that studied the effects of stress and cortisol on the immune system. So that's like one of the first things I did research in. And it's amazing that acute stress, like that immediate stress that you have is actually really, really, it's important because it actually brings in uh, good immune cells, right? Because obviously, say you're going to go into battle, right? The stress response occurs, your immune cells actually sort of are ready in case you get wounded, which is pretty cool, right? So. You know, the inflammatory response can actually follow that acute stress response. But once that, when we have chronic stress, like many of us do, or or I should say that we 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 don't manage our <laughs> chronic stress very well, that sort of inflammatory response doesn't get turned off so well. And so the two can go hand in hand. So yes, a little bit of stress is great. A little bit of inflammation is great. Chronic stress, chronic inflammation, bad.
0: So... Coming out of that lab experience, was there anything that stood out to you where you said, wow, I need to make a change in my life or change how I look at things with patients?
1: Yeah, well, it's really funny because I never thought about it because I was so, you know, when you're 21, you're just like, oh, I just want to go to medical school. I'm just going to work in this lab. And and it was a great experience. And actually um, there were some really uh, famous people who actually worked in the lab. Um, I don't know if you know Robert Sapolsky who wrote yeah. – uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was a I think, a postdoc there like a year or two uh, before I got there. So really, really amazing stuff. And I didn't think about it, but I think it was like a little seed was planted in my brain because when I finished medical school and, and uh, was trying to decide what to do, I went back to this whole immunology thing. And I was like, wow, this whole stress immunology thing. Like, I think I've heard about this before. So it's pretty amazing because that's what I do now is so much of what I was learning when I was like, you know, A kid almost.
0: In terms of overall health, do you think we underestimate stress?
1: I do. I absolutely do. And in fact, if I had to, if I had to pick one thing that people avoid in their wellness programs, (laughs) it's managing their stress. And I think it's because it's not, um, it's not as tangible as something like Oh, I'm going to go on a paleo diet or I'm going to do a measure five,
0: my steps or go get my blood work. Right. Mark, at right. My, you you know, know,
1: everyone's like, and I actually even have clients, well, I don't understand why I'm, you know, I'm still not feeling great. And I say, you know, they go, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing all of my supplements and I'm, I'm, you know, eating the way I'm supposed to eat. And, and I'm like, okay, so how you manage the, you know, how are you managing that job stress or that relationship stress? Or are you meditating? Or are you doing this? Well, no, not really. You know, and, I think it's because it's hard and, you know, we get busy and we just think it's, it's not that important because it's not something that you can like grab with your hands. Right.
0: So in your opinion, what are the, what are the best tools to manage stress?
1: I would have to say number one definitely has to be mindfulness and meditation. Um, and I know there's, you know, a lot of people that do all different types of, of meditation, but you know, one of the issues with stress is that we are supposed to be stressed in the moment, right? That is when the stress response is helpful. So what I mean by that is like, okay, you have to give a talk or you have to run a marathon or whatever. You're going to go for a job interview. That stress response that you have right there is actually helpful, right? But most of us are stressed about something that is in the future that is not happening and may never happen, or we're ruminating about the past. So we're thinking about things that happened to us. or We're replaying something in our head, almost like a trauma so we're stuck in the, the future and the past and not in the present. So what meditation and mindfulness does, if done daily, it constantly brings us back to that, that present moment and allows us to be much stronger and also be more resilient when we are in a stressful state. And it just takes our mind away from like, okay, I'm not gonna worry about something that hasn't happened or like that thing that happened to me 10 years ago. So I would say that's number one for stress. Another thing I really think is helpful is um, doing things like journaling you know dealing with um, you know trauma dealing with uh, past issues um, I think that's super super important and then I'd say sleep for sure sleep
0: what's your sleep minimum
1: I really like people to get eight hours I know that some people say oh you know I can't do that but I would say and, and some of the work that's you know out now Eight hours is really key. I think Um, you go below seven, you know, and I think you're sort of, you know, it's a little dicey
0: I hear you. Yeah, it's going about what I love about mindfulness is it's a practice that's Ongoing and daily and you don't need to like go into a room. It's like you're in the moment. Okay I'm Mm -hmm. observing my thought you have to work at it like Mm -hmm. it's this constant work, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't require you know, it's not like a Vipassana, I'm going to go away for a week or two weeks and do this thing or, right. or, you know, Vedic or TM, the 20 minute, like that works for a lot of people. But the great thing about mindfulness, it's very much in the moment mm-hmm. and helps you become, I think, better in relationships, mm-hmm. better in life in general across the board. It's like a constant practice. Yeah.
1: And you know what? It's it's free. Yeah, it's free. You don't have to have a fancy place to go. You don't have to have money. Um, you don't have to have a s- fancy education. All you have to do is, is uh, get quiet, right? And you can do it anywhere.
0: And I, I think, so my theory for what it's worth is we've become so bad at it because of what I call the space in between is gone. So what do I mean by that? Used to, you know, when I was... In my early 20s, there weren't you know, there was no social media or anything. You'd go to, you, for instance, you go to a restaurant or a bar with a group of friends. There was like the space in between ordering and then the food comes. Mm-hmm. You would have a conversation, you would do things, or if you were dining solo, you would sit there, you mm-hmm. would like, take, you would like, look around, you know, talk to people, but like, you would, th- there was some form of mindfulness that was happening. If you will, like maybe a stretch with conversations, but like you were observing, you were listening and so forth. Now the space in between is just like eliminated where you see people, they go straight to device Mm -hmm. and I do it. We all do like, and so I feel like that has just eroded our mindfulness practice, if you will. And it's like a stretch calling it mindfulness, but that's my theory. Yeah,
1: I think, you know, I grew up in an age where there were no smartphones, right? I mean, we, I still talked on a telephone with a cord. That was what I did when that, when I was a teenager.
0: Oh, I remember that too. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, uh, you know, you raced home to watch, you know, MTV videos, um, you know, after school and stuff, but it is hard. And I think it's really in particular hard for people who grew up in this space with this really just constant, um, exposure to, you know, technology and just being distracted and you know there's so much going on in, in the science of this and how it's it really changes your brain yeah and it is hard it's hard even it's hard for me so you have to you have to really make it a point to sit and like notice you know like notice what's going on notice people you know just look around you know so this whole idea of digital minimalism which is i think uh cal newport's book yeah um, is is written about and uh you know, I think it's really hard for people. People have like a withdrawal from it. You know, to actually sit with your own thoughts and like look around and like twiddle your thumbs and be bored. It's something we don't do anymore.
0: Or it's like here's the food it just came out. It's beautiful. Yes. Wow versus up oh, photo right. Instagram boom. <laughs>
1: Let's take a picture. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. We're all guilty. We're all we guilty. are.
0: I am very guilty. <laughs> and so something you mentioned earlier as you're talking about like playing outside, getting dirty, mm-hmm. what role does the environment play in all of this?
1: So good and bad, right? So I guess you can talk about... In terms of... You're talking about, like, immunity or... Yeah. yeah, Okay. So, you know, on the bad side, right, there's exposure to toxins and things. Um, And we know that our immune system, again, reacts to things like heavy metals, you know, that would be, like, in our water, soil, uh, pesticides. um, And that sort of forces our immune system to be constantly firing, right? And... That can over time lead to. Uh, there's a lot of theories about that leading to autoimmunity, you know, because there's uh, issues with the immune system overfiring or getting confused, and uh, and then just sort of chronic inflammation. So we know that you know environmental toxins are a major problem. Um, on the good side, getting out in nature and being around dirt, right, is awesome for so many different reasons. I mean, as I talked about. You know, just digging around in the dirt and being exposed to microbes, especially when you're a kid. Um, not as much probably when you're when you're an adult. But that's really, really super important. And you know, the whole explosion of using these spore-based probiotics, which basically these are these are bacteria that are not normal to the human body. Meaning, like we're not born with them. We're not. We don't get them from our mother. We pick them up in the dirt. So that's what spore-based probiotics are. They're bacteria that exist in the soil that are very hard to kill, but they're beneficial for gut health so so there's that right and then i think just the mental the mental implications of being out in nature and there's a lot written about now there was a whole series in outside magazine i don't know if you read that or listen to their podcast but talking about nature as a prescription Mm -hmm. you know that doctors are i love that yeah writing prescriptions for nature because we are so inside i mean we're exposed to blue light all day long our circadian rhythms are messed up and and just getting out and being in nature, hearing the birds, you know, it it really changes you. I mean, it really it calms you down. It sort of brings in that relaxation response. But you also get connected to something that's, you know, outside of you, right. which I think is, is really great.
0: So how would you describe your general food philosophy in, with regards to you know, eating for optimal wellness?
1: So... I think that people are biochemically very different, and I think that sort of sets me apart a lot of times from a lot of other uh, functional medicine doctors. I don't have a doctrinal view necessarily of like, oh, you know, don't eat that food or don't eat that food.
0: You're not Stephen Gundry. You said lectins oh, are all terrible for everyone. I
1: Dr. Gundry. He's wonderful. He's, we, we love him, but we, he's controversial. He's fantastic. Yeah, he's, he's great. But, um, he's a
0: very strong point of view on lectins, which a lot of people disagree lectins. with.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I would say that my philosophy is uh, more along sort of the uh, the Michael Pollan, you know, sort of like sure. uh, eat uh, mostly plants, right? Eat food, not and, too much, mostly yeah, plants. Exactly. So real food, 100% real food that has not been tainted, processed, um, you know, any of those things. because. That is what humans are supposed to eat. I do think that some people thrive better, maybe on a more plant-based diet.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I myself do, and I tend to eat uh, mostly plant-based you know, with some fish uh, for the most part. But some people really flourish with uh, other animal meats, so I can't say that that's bad. And I do think that um, I agree with uh, not overeating or not eating too much. I think we all sort of have a problem with that. Um, but there's just so much data, um, on longevity with, um, you know, having nutrient rich diets that are just maybe not very high caloric and also intermittent fasting, you know, and I think that's, uh, there's really important for longevity and brain health, et cetera. So, you know, yes, I think that plants are probably the biggest thing you want to eat really antioxidant rich fruits and vegetables. And, uh, I mean, I can name my favorite vegetables. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, are your, what are your favorite?
0: <laughs> I always love hearing favorite vegetables.
1: Um, Oh, God, well, I love I love all the greens. Arugula is probably my favorite. I love arugula. I love cilantro, which also is a great chelator of heavy metals. Um, of course, I love kale, and I love lentils. I think lentils are great. Lots of great fiber. I like all of the resistant starchy, you know, like sweet potato. Um, a lot of the root vegetables and tubers. Um, and I think they're underappreciated. And I love oysters what was <laughs> because <say? laughs> oysters are my favorite shellfish or mollusk, I should say. It's uh, They're super rich in zinc, which if I had to pick a deficiency that a lot of people have outside of vitamin D, very deficient in zinc. And uh, so I love oysters.
0: (laughs) What about sea veggies?
1: Oh my God. Yeah. I love uh, all sorts of seaweed, you know, hijiki, uh, wakame, all that kind of stuff. And you can throw that into so many different things like soups and stews and salads and uh, really rich sorts of minerals. And of course, iodine, which many of us are deficient in as well.
0: So So we love the Michael Pollan quote. It's on our wall here by My Muddy Green. If you had to summarize just in general, like, okay, generally try to avoid this, what would be on that list?
1: In terms of foods? Yeah. Um, Well, of course, high fructose corn syrup. That's Mm -hmm. probably number one. Um, Really anything that contains that or anything that's processed, uh, that's a big one. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they jumped on sort of the paleo keto bandwagon, um, and I think, you know, ketogenic diets can be awesome, but, um, a lot of the quality of the fats that people are eating are really bad. So if you're eating, say a factory raised animal, um, and you're, you know, eating tons of bacon, you know, pork, bacon, you know, maybe every day, you're not getting good quality fat, so you're getting fats that are, are really tainted with um, all sorts of hormones and, and uh, pesticides and stuff like that because we know that hormones hang out in fat. Um, so I think that really being careful with the quality of the fats you eat. Um, sure. So I would avoid uh, you know inorganic fats for sure um, and also genetically modified food as you can. I mean, it's almost impossible, but when you're buying for your home to try to do that. Sure. Um, those are really the big ones. I think like I said, I'm really I'm I'm a I'm a moderate when it comes to food. I think people should limit their sugar as much as possible. Yeah. Um because it does feed um it does cause, you know, some inflammation, it feeds certain diseases like cancer. Um so those are really the big things, you know.
0: What are your favorite healthy fats?
1: Avocado, for sure. I
0: love avocado.
1: God, I love avocado. It's so good. <laughs> I love nuts. I mean, I am a big fan of nuts and because I don't really uh, do dairy I, I do a lot of like uh cashews and uh stuff like that and I make a lot of delicious tahini cashew I love dressings cashews. sorry sorry
0: Dr. Gundry love I cashews I love cashews I love pistachios too I was
1: so sad when he was talking about that I was like oh god oh, and he yeah. was talking about chia and I was really sad about that too uh, he was like <laughs> chia seeds um well, so, no one has all the answers. Oh, you know, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and I, I feel like, again, it's I've had people really thrive on on certain diets and other people not do so well. So I think there's a lot of that individual biochemistry that we ignore when we get on these like, oh, everyone should eat this and yeah. no one should eat this. And I, I think that does a disservice to, you know, our individuality and our, our genetics. I think there's, you know, broad strokes that we can make sort yes. of. Um, but other than that, I think... A lot of it's figuring out, you know, what you feel good on. And, you know, yes, there's certain tests that you can use, but they're not always 100% accurate.
0: 100% agree. We're all unique individuals. Totally. And look, it's, it's important to have a strong point of view, and a lot of people have mm-hmm. a lot of different points of view, and, you yep. know, share that. And yeah, at the best. end of the day, you're the best.
1: <laughs> you're the best uh, you're laboratory the, for yourself. Yeah, you are. And, and I think yeah. people
0: generally know, like, I eat this and I feel good, or I eat mm-hmm. this and I feel terrible. Or, like, for the most part, I think when... Something's not working. People know
1: absolutely, yeah.
0: So you mentioned deficiencies earlier and talked about vitamin D um, supplements.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know what? What do you take? What? What? What do you think most people are lacking? And
1: so I can tell you what I see, and um, surprisingly, I see a lot of B vitamin deficiencies, which is funny because B vitamins there. You know, there's tons of them. There's uh, what I guess. Oh gosh, twelve or so, um, but. I see a lot of them, and I think it's unusual because you can get them from all different kinds of foods, plant foods, animal foods, with the exception of B12. And I think it's maybe because they're used so ubiquitously in the body. You know? So they're used in our detoxification system, our energy system, our you know, nervous system, immune system, et cetera. So I do tend to see a, a bit of that. Um, I think that also correlates uh, B vitamin deficiencies tend to go hand-in-hand um, hand sometimes with gut problems outside of that i would say zinc deficiency um, i see quite a bit of and vitamin d um, occasionally magnesium because i think it's a it's an electrolyte that we don't readily get back into our bodies and so that one and we don't find it a lot naturally in foods so that one i i tend to supplement a lot with
0: i love magnesium glycinate for sleep
1: oh fantastic that's what i that's what i use as well take it every day you do absolutely always take my magnesium glycinate
0: It's so the best, most highly absorbable form. Right? It is, yep. yep. Bioavailable, yep. Yep,
1: malate's not bad too, but yeah. that's, a, that's a good one, yeah.
0: Um, what is the future of wellness? Like, what do you, what, what's exciting to you? What do you think we're going to be talking about a year from yeah, now? Yeah, big
1: question. Um, one thing that's exciting is I think that the tide is turning. Um, you know, people are coming to terms with that they really have to be in the driver's seat of their health which I think is a good thing, you know, being more investigative and trying to find out what works for them, but also seeking out practitioners that they feel align with their needs. I think that that's really important. I think really concentrating on our food system. And so many people are doing great work out there trying to um, make sure that the food system is, is uh, safe and has a little bit more, I don't wanna say oversight, but, you know, things in place to protect us. And I just think also the, the idea that wellness is not all about necessarily diet and exercise. I would say that's no. like the probably the biggest thing is when I really see people that have turned the tide in their, whatever's going on in their life, whether it's an autoimmune disease, it's not because they changed their diet because maybe they changed their diet six months ago or a year ago, or, you know, they've been doing, um, they've been exercising and doing that type of thing. It's, it's usually they have changed some other part of their life. Uh, maybe they've dealt with some underlying trauma that was a, an issue for them that they really didn't want to deal with or, or didn't know was there. Or maybe they are doing more um, mindfulness practice or really sort of just taking a break or managing their stress better. And I think that that idea that we, we really should not be rats in a cage, um, that we need to get outside with nature, and that's that is important. It's not a luxury. You know, people think like, oh, you know, I just got to work, 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 work until I die. And, you know, a lot of people do that. <laughs> um, but if we really truly want to be well, we have to think of all these other aspects of our life. And I'm a big fan of Dan Buettner's work with, yeah, uh, you know, blue yeah, with the Blue Zones. Um, because really, when they looked at those communities of these people that lived really, really well into their, you know, hundreds, <laughs> it wasn't. They didn't all have the same diet, right? right. Um, they all moved every day, right? They all did some sort of movement. Um, but really, it was all this other stuff that was very intangible, like uh, spirituality, um, having a purpose, um, all these things that we didn't, never put into like the health-wellness bucket. But I think that now we are, and yeah. that is so, so important. I think that's when people really have breakthroughs in, in their health, is when they start going, this is important.
0: You know, 100% agree. After all, what do we say at My Buddy Green? <laughs> Wellness is mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, and environmental well being, yeah. all connected. connected. My Buddy Green, one word, not mm-hmm. three. Exactly. And that's 100% agree. Yeah. Um, so, last question any general advice for people out there, maybe struggling with allergies or autoimmunity who are just like, ugh, yeah. I don't know what to do?
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, number one is, um, Look at your diet first. So, you know, I used to take care of a lot of people with asthmatics, with 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 asthma, who were um, you know dealing with respiratory illness all the time, sinus problems, and oftentimes they were you know eating a lot of foods that maybe were causing more inflammation. So, doing an elimination diet with a good dietitian or a physician. Um, because I think sometimes taking out certain foods like dairy products sometimes can be very inflammatory for people with those conditions. Sometimes people, lots of sugar, processed foods, uh, sometimes, you know, eggs, corn, things like that. So, you know, doing an elimination diet, I think is really, really important. So that would be number one. Um, And also really get with someone who can, you know, help you do some testing and and see what what you are um, allergic to, because you know, it might be a food, or it might be it might be an environmental allergen that you're not aware of. Um, so, you know, getting proper help that way. And, and allergists can do some do some testing, you know, traditional allergy. But I think that if you have not gotten the answers that you need, is seeing someone who has a little bit more of a more tools in their toolbox. Um, so that would be that would be it. And then, you know, I think also with autoimmunity, there's been such an explosion of of uh, autoimmunity. Um, over the past say 50 years and again I think the approach of looking at you know your environment and toxicity and looking at your diet and looking at your sleep patterns all the things that you know that we look at in functional medicine for autoimmunity it's important you know you don't want to just go straight towards the immunosuppressive drug it can be very important to do that in certain cases and life-saving actually but If you have the option of of looking different avenues, do that first or do it in conjunction with the other things that you're taking.
0: I love that. It always helps. Heather, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Jason. This was great.